Berwick Bank at 4.1 gigawatts has the capacity to power Scotland's homes twice over. This takes what, what is currently the largest offshore wind farm in, in Scotland at around a gigawatt and quadruples it. The Scottish Government have indicated that 11 gigawatts of energy can be installed with offshore wind by 2030. Berwick Bank alone would feed into just less than 40% of that target. It's really, really, really exciting, but incredibly complex and incredibly nuanced and incredibly varied. Welcome to Engineering Matters. I'm Bernadette Ballantyne. And I'm Alex Conacher. And this week we've partnered with Fugro to find out about a project that could not only provide clean electricity to the whole of Scotland. It could also become the largest offshore wind farm ever built. Planning and delivering the project will test both the project's owner, SSE Renewables, and the supply chain like never before. But if the UK is to meet its targets for 40 gigawatts of wind energy by 2030, then the challenges will have to be overcome. Because delivering a step change in scale is essential if the country is to decarbonise energy systems and meet its target to become a net zero carbon emitter. My name's Alex Meredith. I'm the project director for Berwick Bank Wind Farm at SSE Renewables. It's a, a site of 1,300 square kilometres in the outer Firth of Forth off the east coast of Scotland. The site was awarded to SSE Renewables by the Crown Estate back in 2010, when the UK awarded its third round of sites for offshore wind farms. And since then we've been developing it to deliver what would now be one of the largest wind farms in the world. The significant thing about round three at that time was that the nine sites along the east coast of the UK were of a much larger scale than those leased in the first couple of rounds. As we heard in episode number 44, offshore wind becoming a world leader, the UK's first ever offshore wind farm at Blythe consisted of just two two megawatt turbines. Today, Alex is talking about a site of 4.1 gigawatts. That's over 2,000 times greater than the pilot project that kicked off the UK's offshore wind industry 20 years ago. A number of important developments led to the growth in the market, from the government's introduction of renewable obligation certificates in 2002, to the technology developments in turbines that mean capacity has increased from 2 megawatts to 14 megawatts per turbine. And these numbers are still growing. One of the side effects of this growth was the economy of scale that comes with expansion. In today's competitive electricity market, wind energy prices have nosedived from £114 per megawatt hour to £39 per megawatt hour, as developers and their supply chains work hard to deliver projects more cost effectively than ever before. Each time a project's been developed, the scale has increased, which I think is a natural result of the learnings that we've had along the way. But this, this takes what, what is currently the largest offshore wind farm in, in Scotland at around a gigawatt, more or less, which is Seagreen. Seagreen, a 1,075 megawatt joint venture project of 114 turbines between SSE Renewables and Total Energies, which is currently under construction and is also in the Firth of Forth. And quadruples it to the 4.1 gigawatts that, that we're trying to develop at Berwick Bank. So it's a really exciting change of, of pace, I think, and, um, and scale. 
And that's really driven by the climate emergency and the need for delivery at scale quickly. And so this project is very much designed to try and help Scotland become a real leader in the offshore wind space. Because Scotland has its own ambitions beyond the UK's wind energy targets, one of which is to be a net zero carbon emitter by 2045. So the 2045 target's important, but even more important, there's a target for 11 gigawatts of offshore wind by 2030 in Scotland. So that's um, a, a real challenge because projects take a long time to come through. But with Berwick Bank, you have four gigawatts potentially that we may we may be able to connect the full capacity before 2030, which would then give you nearly 40% of the of the 11 gigawatt target in one project. This could prove to be crucial for Scotland, which is a long way from its 11 gigawatts target at the moment. So Scotland currently has 1.8 gigawatts of operational offshore wind. And it's got another 1.9 gigawatts under construction. Julia Roop is Fugro's Global Business Development Manager for Offshore Wind. She says that Berwick Bank is not just important for Scotland, but for the whole of the UK. So in 20 years, we've achieved just over 10 gigawatts of operating offshore wind capacity. And by 2030, the UK wants to achieve 40 gigawatts of installed capacity. Not only does the UK need Berwick Bank to meet these targets, it needs several others just like it. Berwick Bank at 4.1 gigawatts has the capacity to power Scotland's homes twice over. And such a large project can bring so much to the local supply chain and essentially create a world-class leading industry in Scotland and the wider UK. But first, the site needs planning consent and SSE Renewables project manager Pamela Phillips says that in order to apply in 2022, they have to gather a lot of data. We've had a large amount of surveying work that will feed into the environmental assessments. So part of that offshore is we've got a large set of aerial surveying and actually I think it's the world's largest ornithology data set. The team has been gathering data on the number and types of birds in the area for two years. And just as important is the data about the seabed that will host these enormous turbines. From an engineering perspective, we've undertaken a large geophysical campaign and that's been supported as well by a, a geotechnical campaign. That's all fed into what we have now as a geological model of the seabed to help us understand our seabed conditions and, and how we might build and what we might build in areas around the seabed. The scale of the site makes this more complicated and challenging than on previous wind farms. Richard Holland knows exactly how complicated it is. My name is Rich Holland. I'm uh, an offshore geotechnical engineer. I work for SSE Renewables. Rich is tasked with understanding the ground conditions that are absolutely critical in determining the types of foundations that will support the turbines. I have, at the moment, almost sole responsibility for uh, deriving and understanding the geological conditions at the site with a view to making all those decisions about how we split the site in terms of areas to make it a, a more construction friendly site because the truth is that at 4.1 gig the supply chain is just not set up to to build a project of this size in one go and nor is it suitable in my eyes at the moment for a single foundation type or a single substructure solution i think because it's so big we need to think beyond that 
He describes the site as a mind-blowing juxtaposition of geology and geotechnics, and says that all of this is really driven by the location. And that's at the boundary of the last glacial maximum. So across the site, glaciers have, have gone back and forth, back and forth over the millennia, and reworked the soil to such a state that it's completely like a, a complete melting pot, if you like, of, of different soil types and, and soil types that we might have thought we understood before, but when you mix them all together over um, a period of multiple sort of regressions and transgressions of those glaciers, it basically is completely unrepresentative of what we ever thought was there previously. And in that regard, it's really, really, really exciting, but incredibly complex and incredibly nuanced and incredibly varied. And across a site of such size, you know, that's a, a mammoth, mammoth undertaking and a mammoth task that we've, that we've got but one that's incredibly exciting nonetheless. This means that there's a lot of variation in the characteristics of the seabed and what works in terms of foundation type for one turbine might not be appropriate for its neighbour. So the site might be 100 kilometres wide, but we're talking about significant engineering differences over distances of in the region of, sort of 20 to 30 metres, which is smaller than the width of a, a foundation footprint. Richard describes understanding the ground conditions as a mammoth task. But as we all know, the longest journeys start with a single step. I guess the, the first port of call was to commission a geophysical survey, and that's a non-intrusive form of survey. So it's effectively a vessel with what we call a streamer out the back of the boat with multiple sensors on it that emit various frequencies and basically penetrate the seabed without having to interact with it. And what we're able to do from that is generate imagery of what we think is below the seabed. So we can pick up things like um, relict valley features and things like where the rockhead gets closer to the, to the seabed because this area of, of, of the world is dominated by a, a thickness of what we call um, sediments and quaternary sediments. Materials such as sand and clay that are lying on top of the rock now the rock isn't at a uniform depth below seabed and that's one of the significant drivers of what foundation type we can use at the site. So one of the key outputs and requirements of that geophysical survey is to accurately map the depth of that, that rockhead across the site and it wasn't uniform and like we said we were able to pick up these valleys which have been incised into the rock and we're able to start to begin to understand what those valleys are infilled with in terms of the material that's in there and what the impact of that might be. Data from the geophysical survey is then processed and interpreted to give an idea of the geology that lies beneath. It's just the first step on the road to understanding it and it's a really, really incredibly difficult task. The scale was particularly large. This is Mark Schreiber. I'm a project director at uh, Fugro, based out of the Fugro Nordup office in the Netherlands. Mark was the project manager for the Berwick Bank Geophysical Survey. We had over 10,000 line kilometres of, um, of planned lines uh, for the various projects or vessels on site. We had two offshore vessels on site and two nearshore vessels, as well as a land-based um, team, which for a smaller component of the nearshore or high water survey. To put the scale of site into context, most of our projects uh, are somewhere between one and two months for a single vessel. We spent about four months on site with two vessels, so it's 
eight to ten times larger than the um, majority of the projects which have been done previously. Mark and the team employed a couple of different tools to measure the seabed levels. The brief was to perform a full geophysical survey and what that is made up of is a number of uh, sensors. This included multi-beam um, echo sounder survey of the site, uh, which is effectively very detailed um, bathymetric mapping of this, of this survey site. Secondary um, element is side scan sonar, which is effectively an acoustic image which is created of the seabed in high detail. And from there, you can select seabed features um, such as boulders, differences in, in um, sediment types or uh, bottom, uh, so that's used for bottom classification normally, different seabed areas types, rocky outcropped sandy areas, sand waves. And in, in some instances, you can draw some information about the, the types of habitats on the bottom. Not only was the wind farm survey site wider than usual, it was deeper too. The site uh, covered a quite a wide range of, of depths. Uh, we've surveyed between 32 and 69 metres, I believe. Most of the offshore wind farm projects which I've been involved with to date are up to about 40, 50 metres. So from that perspective, it's, it's quite, or at least one component of the site um, is in relatively deep water for offshore wind farms. Gathering the data took four months. Or if you're a project manager like Mark, you might measure that in vessel days. We had over 140 vessel days um, between the four vessels we had on site. And the majority of that, approximately yeah, just about 120 days, so four months odd, was made up primarily from the offshore vessels. The findings were as complex as Richard Holland had expected them to be. We did find some interesting geology and faults and uh, paleo channels um, on, on site, which would have to be have been taken into consideration for the foundation design. We were expecting to find shipwrecks. There were 21 wrecks which we did find on the seafloor all of which had been previously uh, charted and, and recorded. Um, so nothing unexpected there. Um, there were no pipelines or cables that we did find, and I don't think there were any in, in the area anyway, so nothing unexpected on that front. But this wasn't all that the team was looking for. Well, one of the major factors which we looked into was uh, boulder mapping on the seafloor. When it comes to cable laying and also laying of foundations and structures, you need to have a good understanding of the boulders, um, which could be on the surface and may inherently be an indicator of boulders below the surface. So one piece of technology we brought to the, to the project here was a uh, new boulder mapping and machine learning algorithm, which we trialed on this project. And that worked out really, really well. It reduced, first of all, the number of, the amount of time required uh, to, to pick all the boulders on site um, significantly. It also reduced man hours and, and the amount of geologists involved who would have normally been a, had to pick that and reduced that significantly and allowed them to concentrate more on the interpretation of the data, which was another big win. I think it, it was a nice example of working together in that we got some further data analysed on site and, and Fugro were able to test out that equipment. Pamela also spent time on the geophysical survey, knowing that anything the team found could be important at a later date. It's really interesting to, to understand the amount of boulders across the site and what effect that actually has because that can require micrositing for turbine locations. In some instances we need to do 
we'd need to go out pre-construction and do boulder clearance if if necessary so it can have a big impact so having that knowledge is 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 really fundamental as well of of being able to have a, a successful installation campaign once the geophysical survey was completed and the seabed model created the next step was something that rich calls ground truthing and ground truthing is a term that we use for effectively going out and doing a geotechnical survey where we take samples from the seabed, bring them back ashore, and we look to describe them and understand them. And actually it's the first chance we get to get our hands on the soil and to understand what it is that we're, we've, we've got over there. We can then refine that model that Fugo have done and look to, to really understand how accurate or not accurate we were. This investment is really important because any unknown represents a risk to the project. And for offshore wind, the seabed is literally the foundation of the project's success. Geotechnical investigation matters because beyond consent, the risk of consent, the, the, the risk to the project posed by the ground conditions is perhaps the single biggest source of unknown um, to the project. And the truth is that if we don't have a foundation type that we think is feasible, buildable and ultimately sign-offable, for want of a better phrase, by, by the insurance people, then we don't have a project. So if we don't understand the ground conditions, we can't present a solution to the board to get financing in place and everything to be able to deliver this. So aside from the consenting risk, the geotechnical and ground risk is often the biggest thing. What is more, data coming from major offshore wind projects shows that the substructures and foundations account for a substantial proportion of the overall project costs. So a third of all your development and um, capital expenditure costs are attributable to foundations and substructures, which is a huge proportion. So after years of planning and research, Rich says that the team are now beginning to determine the foundation types and consider how the projects should be structured in terms of phasing. We're beginning to reach the end of our sort of odyssey into the understanding of geology, and we're now in a position to be able to make that transfer from geology to, to geotechnics and really begin to understand the impact of the ground conditions on what the wind farm will look like in, in its substructures and its foundation types. Although the scale of this site is bigger than anything that's ever been done so far, anywhere in the world, SSE Renewables does have a lot of experience to draw on in offshore wind. Here is Alex Meredith again. Well, no one is building more offshore wind farms anywhere in the world than SSE Renewables. At the moment, Dogger Bank is the largest offshore wind farm in the world, and that's being delivered by SSE. Also, the Sea Green project, which is to the north of Berwick Bank site, is being delivered by SSE. Both Dogger Bank and um, Sea Green are, are partnerships, they're joint ventures. So you know, SSE has different shareholdings in those. but. Um, SSE is leading the construction in both cases. Obviously, we, we delivered Beatrice as well, which is another Scottish project, and Greater Gabbard, which is down in the south of England. And, and you know, so there's, there's a good tradition of delivery of, of offshore wind by SSE. But as these projects are so large scale, we're always working with partners in the delivery process. So whether that's by taking on a JV or, or you know, working with contractors as well. At the moment, Berwick Bank is 100% owned by SSE Renewables, but this could change. I think it's likely in the future that we would try and find a partner or several partners to take the project forward through to construction. 
but that's not a you know that's not a, a certainty at this point. But there's a lot to do before any decisions are made, starting with planning. The next step is to get a planning consent. That process does take time, and we'd expect to put in our submission in May next year, 2022. We we would anticipate that would take a year possibly to determine. So some have taken longer than that, but we'll be asking Scottish Government to move this quickly as you know, as we've discussed the climate emergency demands that we, we do move forward quickly. So we're hoping for a year to determine that application, which puts us into 2023. And again, dependent on success there. So we need a successful consent. We need then a successful CFD application. CFD is shorthand for Contracts for Difference. And these are the mechanisms now used by government to stabilise long-term electricity prices for renewable energy. And then we should be able to move forward to what I've described as FID or the financial commitment to build the project in 2024 with construction through to 2025-26. And our first grid connection date is in 2026. This is an incredibly ambitious timescale for a project of this size. And although first grid connection would be in 2026, it wouldn't be at full capacity by then. That would take several more years, up to 2030. A key consideration for a project of this size is whether the supply chain is capable of delivering it. There is definitely some work to do for us to make a consistent programme that works with the supply chain. and Because this, this kind of scale project does require enormous levels of uh, manufacturing, vessel availability, and it all has to fit together into one, one programme of delivery. So when we talk about phasing, you know, ultimately the best way for us to deliver this site is to start, get everyone mobilised and move forward consistently to the end. So in that sense, it's one project and one delivery programme. But obviously within that sits a number of um, what you might call phases or steps. And how we do that is a, is, a, is a piece of work that we're really focused on at the moment because there are questions about whether certain seabed conditions lend themselves to delivery of, of sites, you know, in certain orders so that you have you know, different scale foundations and you can fabricate certain size foundations, you know, in one go and then they might not all be delivered at the same part of the site. Or the the technology on turbines, as I'm sure you know, is changing quite quickly. And so the, on a program that might be in construction for five years, you might have different turbines available through that period. But just because larger turbines are available, it doesn't mean they'll be selected. Alex and the team are very carefully thinking about what's most appropriate for Berwick Bank, based on their extensive experience, technology available, and the limits of the logistics network that supports construction of the wind farms. The difficulty we're getting to now is that the scale of the foundations are so large that you then become, if we were to design and, and um, consider the, the biggest possible turbine models that are being foreseen, we're not quite sure whether we have vessels capable of delivering the foundations that are big enough to accommodate those those machines. And, and then you're into a conversation about crane boom lengths, you know, clearances, genuinely stretching the potential of what can be done on a jack-up vessel at least with the technology that we know is available and all foreseen at this point. But that, that's a challenge for the industry generally. Challenges and opportunities often go hand in hand. An opportunity here is for economic growth in manufacturing and in fabrication. 
on a smaller project, you can't make the case to a manufacturer or fabricator, move your facilities here and, and set something up. Whereas with this, with so much to do, we can make that case much more strongly. And then there's all of the people who would work on the project. There's so many people would work on a project like this because it's so big that you're talking about skilling up an enormous number of people who then can go on and do other projects, whether they're in Scotland or in the UK or further afield. So you're training a whole workforce of people in the UK who are going to be the experts because they would have worked on the biggest sites in the world. They, you know that that dynamic of, of people who are, have seen the hardest questions answered can then go on and and work on other projects going forward. So I think the skills legacy is is massive. Engineering Matters is a production of Reby Media. This episode was written and hosted by me, Bernadette Ballantyne. My co-host was Alex Conacher. Sound engineering was done by Ross McPherson. Series supervision by John Young. And our own source of offshore energy is Rory Harris. Thank you to our episode partner, Fugro, and to SSE Renewables. Thank you for listening. You can find Engineering Matters on all podcast apps, on Facebook, Twitter and LinkedIn. And don't forget to look at our website and sign up to our newsletter for the latest engineering announcements and developments from all over the world.